The book of Revelation is a book about the end of the world. And the Bible is prophesying what is going to happen when that final day with a capital D comes, or the last days, plural. It means the same thing. The first thing we believe is the rapture of the church, which the book of Revelation, I believe, makes allusion to, but it does not describe as Thessalonians does, for example. But that the people of God, the church, will be caught up into the air to be with the Lord. We will be kept out of the hour of trial, as the Lord Jesus wrote to one of the churches in the early chapters. And then that hour of trial will begin, number two, with the rise of Babylon. And next week is going to be all about Babylon, so you don't want to miss that one. But there will be a worldwide empire that will rise and conquer the globe during this time. It'll be a seven-year period where this kingdom is in charge. Number three is the ravage of God's people. There's a, a spiritual aspect to this, this book that uh, we see the, the Jews especially, the Israelites more broadly, but also the, those that come to believe in Christ during this time will be persecuted like never before. We're going to read next week how it'll say Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints. It's going to be a horrific time. Number four is the ruin of the planet. There are going to be plagues that are brought down upon the world that will burn up the green grass, that will poison the water, that will blight the sky. We're going to talk more about some of that today, actually. And um, there's debate over whether this is celestial, meaning God is the one inflicting this, or if this is actually uh, the work of men on earth themselves, just completely unleashed and untethered from God's restraint. In any case, God is behind it, but there is some debate over that. Number five is the revenge of the devil. Going back to the supernatural background of what's going on, God will allow Satan and his demonic hordes to ravage the globe like he's never let them do this before. Satan will be removed from heaven, no longer permitted to accuse God's people, and it says he will be angry because of that, and he will say, since I've only got a little time left, I'm going to cause as much havoc as I can. Number six, this is sort of parallel to the ravage of God's people, but is the refuge of the faithful. That God is going to provide a place in the wilderness for the Jews, the Israelites, to flee during this time, where he will supernaturally protect them. We'll hit more on this topic today also, and especially in the coming weeks. But on top of that is also the fact that anybody who dies in Christ at this time is going home to a well-earned reward, which is something that should not be forgotten. And number seven, we've been looking at the last few weeks, the reign of the Antichrist. That Babylon is going to give rise to a single worldwide dictator. Halfway through this seven-year period, he's going to have a prophet that goes alongside him. He'll declare himself to be God. This is where we get the mark of the beast. This is where we get mass execution. And it's not going to be a good time. It's not going to be a good time. And last week, we, we looked at kind of what's going on in heaven at this time. There were these heavenly announcements of what God's opinion is on this. Because chapter 12 and 13, you get introduced to that malignant trinity, as we've called them, right? The dragon, who is Satan, the beast out of the sea, who is the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, who is the false prophet. And you see all the things they're doing, and you can get really freaked out. Like, this is going to happen? I, I'm so worried. I'm so scared. But then it takes you right back up to heaven, and it shows you that the Lord is in control. The Lord is on his throne, and nobody's going to touch that. And the last thing we saw was there were seven angels that came out of the heavenly sanctuary holding the bowls of God's wrath. The bowl, some people have translated it chalice. So the old King James has it translated vile, like a... Like a not like vile, like evil, but vile, like a thing that holds liquid. And in any case, it's going to be poured out on the earth. The last seven plagues, 
And we're going to start by reading the first 11 verses. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and in the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve." And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. I call this section, if we're going to add to that list I was giving you earlier, the rot of the world. We had the ruin of the planet when these things began. I think what you have now is the culmination of these plagues as they intensify and the world and the waters begin to rot and fall apart. Everything is going to get worse and worse until the end. Maybe you notice as you go through this, but many of these plagues actually mirror the 10 plagues that were poured out on Egypt. The sores that were poured out, the river and water turning to blood, the darkness, the, there's others that will come up here. But the idea is that these plagues are like what God did to Egypt and that, in fact, Babylon is supposed to be the last day's manifestation of what Egypt represented to Israel. So first of all, you have these sores. This is the Greek word that, from where we get the word ulcer. That is a wicked and painful sore for everybody that worships the beast, takes the mark of the beast, and follows after him. So this is one reason among many why I, I do not like when people talk about accidentally taking the mark of the beast. Like, oh, you were given a social security number at birth, therefore you've taken the mark of the beast. You, you chuckle, but that's out there. Like the, the Bible says the Lord has nothing but horrific judgment in hand for those that do this. It is, it is a mark of going too far. The point of no return. So people ought to be more careful when they start to identify things that, that would lead to something like that. But imagine everybody, which is all the world, going after the beast, but everyone has taken that mark on the hand or the forehead, develops these boils or these sores all over their body like Job. Imagine, you know, we had the, the coronavirus pandemic. We had, I, you would, I guess, call that a plague in biblical terminology. It was terrible for some, not so bad for others. For a lot of us, it didn't really affect us too much. But imagine if just about everybody is walking around, not with a persistent cough or leading to, you know, some other problems, but with boils and sores all over their bodies. That's the first bowl judgment. The second and third have the sea and the rivers and springs, so salt and fresh water, turning to blood. This is parallel to the second and third trumpet judgments that we already saw, when it said a third of the ocean and a third of the fresh water was turned to blood. It was made wormwood. It was made poison. 
I don't see any reason, and I think this is actually the best way to understand this, that you do not here have so much a separate affliction coming on the water. It's just the first time those trumpets were blown and the water was smitten, it has continued to get worse and worse and worse. Whether as Ed Heinsohn, great pre-trib uh, teacher, believes this was some sort of radioactivity, nuclear exchange that poisoned the waters, or whether it's just like in Egypt, just like in the book of Exodus, where it actually turned to blood. If a third of all the waters turned to blood, it begins to spread. It's poisoned. It's wormwood. Now everything in the ocean. Imagine if everything in the ocean died at once. And imagine if the Lord caused the, their bodies even to rupture and their blood to begin to come out. We don't even know how many things are in the ocean right now. So this poison, this rot, this blood. Some, one person even says, I think when it says it became like blood, it's best understood is that it, was, it would congeal, that it thickened because of the, the affliction that God sent upon it. And also upon the, the fresh water. So you can see something that started is now coming to the end. There's a progression here. Now you might see that, and especially if you are of a more conservationist bent, you might say, how could God harm the planet like that? But look at what it says in verse 5. The angel, ESV says, in charge of the waters, literally just says, the angel of the waters. I'm not going to dive into the uh, angelic implications of that, but apparently there is an angel that has charge over the waters of the earth. Now, if there was anybody that would be upset at the waters being turned to blood, you would think it would be the angel of the waters, right? Like, I, I've been trying my best to keep this thing clean for thousands of years, and now you turn it to blood. But what does he say? Just are you, O Holy One. This is right. They deserve this. They deserve to have blood to drink because they have been bloodthirsty in the world's oppression of the saints. There's a whole Bible study to be done about one of the greatest judgments that God inflicts upon a person is giving them exactly what they deserve. That this is what you have earned for yourself. It's not so much I'm going to give you something random out of the blue. It's going to match exactly to what you've done. It's blood for blood. The fourth bowl is similar to the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet said that a third of the sky was darkened. Do you remember that? Now, we talked about because of these stars falling on the earth, again, some believe this is, uh, this is actually man-made stars, some sort of nuclear exchange, perhaps. I, I'm not going to give you a definite answer on that because I don't have one. At the very least, you've got stars falling from heaven. That When something like that happens, you can have the ash that goes into the sky that can produce something called a nuclear winter that actually cools off the globe because of the way that the sun is actually being blotted out by the ash and by the smoke. Well, here you have the opposite of that, that the sun begins to scorch and burn the earth with a fervent heat. Imagine if all of that pollution, whether celestial or man-made or a mixture of both, who knows, has first of all blotted out the sun, but over time it begins to completely eradicate that ozone layer that everybody freaks out so much. And now it's gone from a cooling of the earth to now there's no more protection between the sun and its violent heat, and everybody begins to burn up on the earth. That would probably tie into the vegetation drying up. You now have a drought. You have desert all over the globe. And then you have the kingdom of the beast thrown into darkness, which is a, an amazing parallel and irony here. The whole world is being scorched and burned with a fervent heat, yet God specifically throws down upon the throne of the beast, which I believe to be the city of Babylon. More on that next week. And it'll be in darkness, like Egypt was in darkness, while the Hebrews in Goshen had light in the book of Exodus. So it's the Lord's way of saying, this is me. 
Don't explain this away. It is me. You are in darkness while the rest of the world is in light. In fact, too much light. The sun is smiting them. Well, it says they nod their tongues in anguish. Is this because the darkness itself is painful? No, there's plenty of other pains for them to be gnawing their tongues over. They can't drink anything. I imagine food is beginning to become scarce. We know that from the four horsemen. And uh, they've all got boils and sores. And so they're just sitting there brooding over their pain. And yet they don't repent, he says. They just sit there thinking about how unfair it all is that God would do this to us. Now, you might think that even if you don't care for some of God's moral judgments, when you realize who's in charge around here, you might say, well, I'm not fighting against that. But the Bible and history and our own lives have told us that the heart of man is desperately wicked. In the book of Amos, chapter 4, I'm not going to read the whole section for you, but God runs through with Amos. He says, I sent famine upon the people. It's five things. I sent famine upon the people. I sent drought upon the people. I sent blight and the destruction of their crops upon the people. I sent a plague upon the people. I sent an invasion upon the people, and they still didn't repent. And in Amos chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, he finishes this chapter, that section. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The Lord says, I sent you five chastisements to get your attention, and you refuse to repent. Therefore, I'm coming for you. And I think it's interesting, this parallel, because he says, I'm the one who makes the morning darkness, which is exactly what we have here in Revelation. And it's a similar situation because after all these plagues, they still have not repented. The people will persist in their wickedness. So if I may take the time, because I think it's too important a point to pass over. What about you? When exactly is rock bottom going to be rock bottom enough for you to turn to God and say, okay, that's enough. That's enough. God, you have my attention. You've known these people, haven't you? Maybe you've been this person before. But I, I've had friends before where, as the saying goes, they hit rock bottom and then they picked up a shovel. And they kept on digging and they kept on going. And I remember one friend of mine who, whose end was absolutely tragic. I'll share it with you someday if I can keep it together. But he, he said, well, you know, I, I think I'm ready to start going back to church again. I was overjoyed and I brought him to church after all this. I mean, terror, his body was ravaged. His mind was a mess. His life was going nowhere. But as we're there, he still had this pride. I don't know if I can just believe everything that the Bible says. I've got to sort it out for myself. To which, as one of his dear friends, I said, you really think that you have the ability to sort all this out for yourself? Well, yeah, I think I do. And I told him, well, you've been doing a great job of it so far, haven't you? Well, what about you? What's it going to take? What about our country? You know, we sit here and we debate all over and over again, like, was this the judgment of God? Was 9-11 the judgment of God? Was the banking collapse in 2008 uh, the judgment of God? Was the coronavirus the judgment of God? You know what the Bible says? Who cares? Have you, has God got your attention yet? It, it, Jesus said in Luke 13, when they were telling about all these tragedies that had gone down, he said, do you think that they were worse sinners and that this was God's judgment? He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. 
You are supposed to view tragedy as a, as a reminder to run to Jesus and repent of your sins. You know, we, I'll give you just one example because I, I could talk about this as its own sermon, but, you know, you, you see people talking about these cities, these big, historic, amazing American cities that we're so proud of, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, pick your poison, Portland, right? And uh, we look at how they're just falling to pieces and the poverty and the homelessness and the corruption, and we say, what, what has happened? You, you guys have got to get it together. Not realizing that these cities have also in the past been historical bastions of wickedness. And, and not making the connection that the Bible tells us to make, that I will not be mocked, and if you're going to persist in this, I'm going to afflict you. Do I know for sure that's what God's doing? No, but I do know for sure from Scripture, the Bible says when you see this, you should repent in sackcloth and ashes and cry out to the Lord for help. It's not going to be a political revolution that saves this country. It's going to be a religious and spiritual revival. How many more terrible things must we suffer before we repent in sackcloth and ashes? I must say, I'm not too interested in forming a coalition with this or that group in order to take back the White House. I'm worried about what's going on in God's houses across the country more than anything else, all right? Today must be the day of repentance. And we are very blessed to live in a, in a region and in a state where some of the worst of those things aren't happening. But the Bible says, those of you who think you stand, take heed, lest you what? You fall. Well, let's get on to verse 12 now. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then you've got this interjection from Jesus here. Isn't this amazing? Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. If you've wondered where this comes from in your Bible, you're reading it right now. This is a revelation that will require all of our Bible knowledge to put together and to understand. This is when Armageddon begins. The sixth bowl dries up the Euphrates River. Why is the Euphrates River important? This is Babylon's river. Babylon was built upon the, or alongside, shall we say, the river Euphrates. You've heard the phrase Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means between two rivers. Those two rivers are the Tigris, Assyria's river, and the Euphrates, Babylon's river. It's a very important and significant body of water. And it dries up. Now, I don't know if this is just, a, it could very well be just like the Jordan River where the Lord dries it up, or perhaps it's related to some of these other plagues that happen. Perhaps there's a, some attempt to try and fix the water supply. I think if you read Exodus, for example, it's very clear that some of these plagues sequentially lead into the next. It's also clear God is behind them all. But in any case, Euphrates is dry. Now, why is this significant? John tells us. So that the kings from the east might send their armies at the demonic behest of the malignant trinity. Now, these kings of the east, a very common position 
especially uh, John Walvert, I believe, pushed this one. I don't want to say push like it was a bad thing. It's a legitimate interpretation, but have seen this as those armies from Japan, China, India, that, that part of the East. And the reason being is because East, specifically, it is the, the rising sun. And so, of course, those that were familiar with Japan know it is the land of the rising sun, right? I don't, I don't think that's a great way to read this passage. Because what we have here, you'll, if you look closely, is not an invading army coming to attack the Antichrist. They are coming at the call of the Antichrist. Satan, the dragon, the beast, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are going to send out spirits, evil frog-like spirits, an unclean creature. Again, another parallel to the Exodus story, frogs, right? And they're going to do signs and wonders to gather all the armies at Armageddon. Talk about what that is in just a minute. So this is not an invasion army against the Antichrist. He is calling any one of his vassal states to come with him. For what purpose? For battle on the great day of God the Almighty. That's why there is this assembly at Armageddon. And this is such a terrible thought. The gathering together of this army is so awful that Jesus says, John, let me interrupt you for a second and tell everybody, I'm coming quickly, you need to be ready. Apparently this is, this is of all these things, this is the piece where Jesus is like, Don't, you do not want to miss it when I return. Because if you're not with me when I return, you're going to be with these guys. And we're going to read what's going to happen to them in just a minute here. Armageddon. This is a, a very common word that you hear a lot today because it's, it's kind of code for the end of the world. It's like Ragnarok was the Norse version of the end of the world. Armageddon is the Christian version of the end of the world. Well, kind of, sort of. It's not a terrible description, but it's actually a place. Armageddon, it says in Hebrew, it is called Armageddon. This is in Hebrew, two words, Har, which means mountain, and Megiddo which is a location. So Armageddon, when you take it into Greek, it adds that N at the end to make it a, a Greek word, and then it combines it. Har Megiddo, mountain of Megiddo. Now this is disputed. Uh, there are many that say it's just symbolic. It doesn't mean anything. But I, for one, don't like to push for symbols when you don't need them. And if you see on the map on your screen up there, Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo, is a valley up in the northern part of the promised land, the Jezreel Valley. There was a city there called Megiddo, and that city gave its name, lent its name to the rest of this valley. Now, what people dispute is, but Megiddo is a valley, not a mountain. Well, there is a place today called Tel Megiddo. A Tel, we've been talking about this in Joshua, as we talk about archaeology. A Tel is the ruins of a city. Like the, you have the layers of all the cities that have been built, but now the city's been abandoned. Earth has grown over it. So it's an unnatural hill where a city used to be. And there is one now in existence called Tel Megiddo, which is the hill where the city Megiddo used to be. Also, I could just say this. Uh, we know where Megiddo is. And if we can't figure out exactly which mountain he's talking about, well, we know where the half of it is. Let's not worry about the other half so much. There is a mountain that he's going to call them to. This Jezreel Valley, Napoleon Bonaparte very famously saw this and said, that is the best looking battlefield I've ever seen in my entire life. Like if I ever had to gather troops to fight somebody, I'd stick them right there. It is all the marks you'd want for a great place for a battle. And the Lord's like, I kind of agree with you. 
Jezreel Valley. There are many ancient battles that were fought there. Deborah and Barak fought battles there. This is where Josiah fought Pharaoh Necho and was killed. There are others. Everybody knows when you say Armageddon, it's shorthand for the last battle. And it is that. But if you really want to be specific and pedantic about it, it's not just the last battle, it's the last war. It's the last campaign because there will be a series of battles. Although there is one big one that, that comes from Armageddon, it's going to be several. And it's not even that they're fighting a battle there, although there will be bloodshed there. That's where they're going to assemble and muster the troops before they march. Now, in order to give you the context here, we're going to talk a little bit more reminder of where we stand with the Antichrist at this point. He's gathering his armies. The Lord has sovereignly made the way for his armies to come from the east. Let's talk about where we are. The tribulation, which is what the Bible calls this time. Jesus gave it that title. The tribulation is a seven-year period. We know that halfway through this period, Babylon, the empire that we talked about, which is a ten-kingdom coalition, will no longer be a coalition. It will no longer be a I don't know if they're going to try to frame it as a democracy or a republic or what they're going to try to do. But it's going to give way to a single dictator. The Antichrist is the title that John gives him in his epistles. He's also called the man of lawlessness. He's called the beast symbolically in Revelation. The Antichrist. So it's no longer a coalition of nations. It is now an empire led by a single emperor. He will defile the temple and compel worship of himself. This is when not only will you have to worship me, you'll have to take my mark on your hand or your forehead, take my number, which is 666, talked about that already, and you will not be able to engage in the economic system unless you have this mark. So he's completely consolidated the globe, not just militarily, but politically, economically, religiously. And now I want to talk a little bit about the wars that the Antichrist is going to fight. Daniel tells us that he will be a man of war. He won't recognize any god. His god will be the god of fortresses. And that's not saying he's going to have, oh, this is the fortress god. I worship him. He's going to say, I'm not interested in your gods. What I'm interested in is your tanks. I'm interested in your missiles. I'm interested in war. That's what I worship. That's the only thing he cares about. So let's talk about, th about these wars that he's going to fight. Daniel 7 tells us that of these 10 nations, which are symbolized by 10 horns on this monster, if you remember, it says when the little horn comes up, who's the Antichrist, he's going to remove three of those other horns. And it's actually interpreted for us in Daniel 7, 24. There will be 10 kings jointly leading Babylon. There will be one man who rises up and says, now I'm going to lead Babylon. There will be three of those kings who will resist him, but he will put them down. And if you read in Daniel chapter 11, it seems that these are North African kingdoms. When we talk next week about uh, what kingdom this is, that will come into play. But it says in Daniel 11:43 that there will be the south that rises up against him. He will march after them. And when he leaves from putting them down, all of the riches of Egypt, Libya, and Cush will come with him. Egypt and, and Libya, of course, North African countries. And Cush is modern-day Sudan, North Sudan. 
Those seem to be the countries he's going to put down. So that's the first war of the Antichrist. It says in the beginning of Revelation, he goes out conquering and to conquer, fighting on behalf of Babylon, but now he's fighting on behalf of himself. I am Babylon, he's going to say. And the first war he's going to fight is to put down this North African resistance, to remove those three horns. But if we keep reading in Daniel 11, 44 through 45, right after that's over, it says, News from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So it says he'll go down, he'll put down these African nations, he'll bring back all the spoil with him. But then he'll receive news from the north and news from the east. And he's going to ride off to conquer to devote many to destruction. That's a reference to that Hebrew word, haram, that we've been talking about in the book of Joshua. He's going to go out and pretty much striking right and left and breaking people down. It doesn't say what that news from the east and north will be. I have an idea about it, but I'll save it for later. And then it says in verse 45, he'll pitch his tent between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. I believe that's a reference to Armageddon. because That's where Armageddon is. It's in Israel that he's going to pitch his tents and gather his armies with him. What are we getting out of this? He's a conqueror. He's a man of war. And it is his final campaign that concerns us today. The news from the east and the north. Well, I might as well just tell you. We read in Revelation 17 that it is the Antichrist himself and his armies that will destroy the city of Babylon. Why would he do that? Well, we'll talk about that next time. But it seems at least that the, the organization of Babylon is not going to so much like that this guy is conquering the world and establishing authority for himself. So this religious economic system is going to be working against him until finally he says, all right, that's enough out of you. And he'll strike them down. Maybe that's the news from the east and the north. But in any case, the drying up of the Euphrates River will provide the beast who has been basically at war since the middle of this tribulation. When the river Euphrates dries up, he will have an opportunity to consolidate his power and defeat his final enemies. And Armageddon is where he will gather his forces for a final assault. He might not think it's going to be his final assault, but it's going to be. And there, y'all, there are so many passages in the Bible about God gathering together all the nations of the world to fight against Israel in the latter days. I can't even read them all to you, but I'm going to give you some of the most important ones. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Joel 2 ends with, I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh, and they will prophesy. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the sky will be made dark, and the moon will turn to blood on that day. So it's the day we're talking about in Revelation. Knowing that, Joel 3, For behold, in those days, what days? When the moon is turned to blood and the sky is darkened. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So the Lord says, I will gather all the nations. The Antichrist is saying, let's, let's bring it all together. But the Lord's making the way by opening up the Euphrates. He's allowing those evil spirits to be sent out to deceive all the nations and gather them there. And we're going to see why this is going to look really intimidating, but it's a trap. Because the Lord is going to handle these nations. 
As we see in, in Joel chapter 3 there, the Antichrist's primary target in this campaign will be Jerusalem, as the scriptures have repeatedly foretold. You better turn with me here to Ezekiel chapter 38. This is a fascinating passage. It is a disputed one, and I'm going to differ with certain prophecy teachers, Tim LaHaye being one of them, in that I believe when we read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it is describing the exact same event that is described in chapter 16 of Revelation, that this, the battle of Gog and Magog, that'll make sense to you in a minute, is the same thing as the battle of Armageddon. It's the same battle. Let's read this, verses 1 through 16, and you can get a sense of what's happening What's happening in this story? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out. And all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togarma from the uttermost parts of the north, and with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come up into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on the day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What do you have here? Gog, who's the name of a ruler, the king of a place called Magog. And the Lord says, in the last days, I'm going to trick you. You are going to think that it's your idea to come and invade the nation of Israel and finally put them down. But he says, but I'm putting that in your heart so that I can finally destroy you and vindicate my holiness before the whole world. I think this is exactly what is being described in Revelation chapter 16. The gathering swarming into the land, he says, like, like a cloud. And you have all of these names that are places you might not recognize, but without diving into all the details of this passage, some of the, the nations, the modern-day nations that are described here include Turkey, Iran, Syria, Sudan, Libya, 
North Africa. Some people even speculate Russia might be included there, as well as many of the post-Soviet republics that are now to the north of the Middle East. Psalm 83 may be another parallel passage that even includes more nations, including Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and others like that. God is the one behind this, gathering all the nations of the world to bring the tribulation to an end, drying up the Euphrates so that he says, this is our chance. Makes you wonder what transportation is like after seven years of tribulation, huh? I don't know if, if your satellites are going to be working too well after all this, but they're going to gather together in a place called Armageddon, as was prophesied in Joel, as was prophesied in Ezekiel, and has been prophesied in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist is a warrior, he's a conqueror, and his last campaign is going to begin at a place called Armageddon, which is a valley in the northern parts of Israel. Let's finish this chapter back in Revelation 16. Keep your finger in Ezekiel, though. We'll be back there. Too late for some of you, I think. <laughs> the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Well, here's the seventh bowl. The sixth bowl was the gathering of the armies at Armageddon. Bowl seven tells us what's going to happen to this army that gathers at Armageddon, and the short version is they're going to be destroyed. They're going to lose. John identifies another terrible earthquake that is going to destroy every island, flatten every mountain, and hailstones will fall from heaven that will crush the ungodly armies of the Antichrist. Not only that, but it says the great city will be shattered and that many other cities will fall, including Babylon. Here's an interpretive question. Which city is the great city? The general consensus is that it is Jerusalem. The challenge to that is that Babylon is very often referred to as the great city in this book. So which is it? Is it Babylon, whatever that symbol might be for Babylon, or Jerusalem itself? Now, it is, there's a strong case to be made for the fact that it is Jerusalem. That, uh, I'm sorry, that it is Babylon. That Babylon and Jerusalem are, in fact, one and the same. Although verse 19 seems to separate them, that the great city fell, so did all the cities of the nations, and God did not forget Babylon in that mix. We know that there will be an earthquake after this great battle that will hit Jerusalem, but will make the way for the Lord to return. So I believe, and many prophecy teachers as well, believe this great city that is going to be split into three pieces is Jerusalem. All the great cities of the world, it seems, not sparing Babylon, are going to fall as a result of this earthquake and this hail. And that is going to be the, the, the subject for the next two chapters, even really to the end of the book, is the fall of Babylon. So I know I'm being withholding with some of these details. That's because we're going to talk about it later. So I want to get what this is focused on more importantly. The beast and the kings of the earth, it says, are going to destroy Babylon, the city. 
but God is going to finish the job forever with this seventh bowl. Seems likely that in some way, the destruction of Babylon is part of this campaign of Armageddon. Perhaps the kings of the east are the ones that are going to come through the Euphrates River, destroy Babylon on their way. But it seems that whatever they do to Babylon, it's going to be made worse. Maybe they're going to say, let's just sack the city and then we'll come back and rebuild it when you're done. But the Lord is going to send these hailstones down on it. They're going to make it absolutely uninhabitable forever. But this earthquake matches many other places that give us details of this war against Jerusalem. So remember, the Bible has this Antichrist that has arisen. He's gathering an army for one last battle, and his target is Jerusalem. Revelation 16 tells us there's going to be an earthquake that will stop him. Okay? There are other places in the Bible that say the same things that actually flesh out the details a little more. So let's look at these. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. I realize this is a lot of scripture, but if you're going to make heads or tails of this, you've got to put it all together. Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14 is commonly called the little apocalypse because it also describes the end of the world, but it's not nearly as long as the actual apocalypse, Revelation. Let's read Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2. And keep your finger there. We'll be back. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, Jews, Israel, will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Sound familiar? And the city shall be taken. And the house is plundered. And the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So the Antichrist gathers his armies at Armageddon. Revelation skips right to the destruction of the armies. Zechariah tells us what will happen in between. They will march on Jerusalem. They will besiege it. Zechariah 12.2 tells us there will be a siege around the city of Jerusalem. But that eventually, as according to Zechariah 14... They will break through, and the city of Jerusalem will be sacked. You know, you, we've seen all sorts of terrible imagery from the war in Ukraine, and you go back and look at other wars, Vietnam, and even World War II, where you can see video footage, and it's, it's horrific to see. But, th but these things are nothing compared to an, uh, the ancient way of sacking a city, where you would go into the city and not just conquer it, not just march in and take control of it, you'd burn it. You'd plunder it. You'd destroy every, anything that was significant. You would take the women. The women would be raped. The children would be killed. The men would be butchered right there in the street. There'd be nothing left of it. And if a city was sacked in ancient times, there was no getting it back. It was over unless somebody decided to rebuild it, as was the case with Jericho, for example. The city will be sacked to the terror of the Jews. I believe this is when those two witnesses we read about in chapter 11 will be killed. Why do I believe that? Well, now I can kind of give you the full picture. It says that they will prophesy for three and a half years. And then in chapter 11, verse 7, the Antichrist will make war against them and finally kill them. But after three days of celebration by the world, there will be an earthquake and the two witnesses will come back to life, which is what we should expect because the Bible tells us that the sack of Jerusalem will be cut short. Zechariah mentions these refugees fleeing from Jerusalem into the wilderness. We've already read in chapter 12, verse 14 of Revelation that in the wilderness, God has prepared a place to hide the faithful people of Israel, the refuge for the faithful, remember? So 
picture this. Just, let's just set the picture here. I realize this is a lot of information, but that's what the Bible gives us. Putting all these threads together it can be complicated, but I think it's rewarding when you do it. That Bible says, when you see the abomination of desolation, Israel, run for your life into the wilderness. Because that's when the persecution is really going to ramp up. Okay? There will be many that flee into the wilderness to be protected in a place near Basra that the Bible tells us. Imagine those living in Jerusalem during this time, knowing that there are refugees hiding in the wilderness, but they don't go. They stay for whatever reason. Maybe they're not allowed to. Maybe they just don't want to. But now here comes this battle. The city is besieged, and Babylon finally does it. They finally attack and destroy Jerusalem. So half of the population of the city flees. Where are they going to go? They're going to go right to that place in the wilderness where they know the rest of their brothers are hiding. And Zechariah 12 tells us that there's going to be a day when the Lord is going to pour out a spirit of repentance upon the people of Israel. That they will look upon him whom they've pierced. They will weep for him. There will be a spirit of mercy and crying out for help. And then Christ will return. So let's continue our story. Jerusalem is being sacked. Grisly, horrific, terrible things that the world would, should never be a part of. Sin at its absolute worst. God's chosen people are fleeing into the wilderness to join those who are already there. I would imagine they're being harried. They're being attacked along the way. They're dying. They're not even surviving the journey. But they make it there. Now the Antichrist armies are encamped around their stronghold near Basra. And that's when the Lord pours out a spirit of repentance upon them. They begin to cry out. Say, Lord, help us. This is, this, this is it. The Jews are finally going to be done for. This is going to be the Holocaust of Holocaust. There's going to be none left. We need you. We need your Messiah just like you promised. Where is he? And then they realize there's going to be a moment where God lifts the hardness of heart off of Israel. And they say, we killed Messiah. We need him now. And we killed him. And it says they will weep for him like you weep for an only son. They're going to break down and cry because, not because, oh no, we're going to die, but we had the chance to be delivered and we wasted it. And there will be mercy and repentance poured out upon them. And at that point, it says there's going to be an earthquake that happens. A global upheaval unlike anything ever seen that is going to shatter every city on the globe. In particular, an earthquake that will ravage Jerusalem. Split it into three different pieces. The Bible repeatedly describes that this final army that marches on Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, yes, by the hand of the Lord, but through the convulsions of nature itself. Hopefully, you've still got your finger in Ezekiel 38. I sure don't. But <laughs> Ezekiel 38 Verse 17 through 23. So we just read about how he's gathering all these nations together. North, south, east, and west. Gathered against Jerusalem. But I'm going to vindicate my holiness by destroying them. And so verse 17, God says how he's going to do it. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days? By my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. 
the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am, that I am the Lord. God will sovereignly intervene to bring destruction down upon the Antichrist's armies, which will be occupying Israel, reveling in Jerusalem for at least three days, the Bible tells us in Revelation 11. But then there's going to be an earthquake and hailstones are going to begin to fall from heaven. A hundred pound hailstones falling from the earth while the Israelites, the Jews are crying out, Lord, Hosanna, save us now, right? And then the earth itself is going to begin to rock. Every mountain is going to collapse. The, the hailstones are going to be smashing into every city. Babylon will be destroyed. Every city of note on earth will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be split into three pieces. Ezekiel said that the armies are going to turn on each other at this point. They're going to begin to fight one another. Zechariah also talks about this. Keep your finger there. Hopefully you did. Back in Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 5, when it talked about the sack of the city, the rape of the women and all that. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. This earthquake will level parts of the city, totally change the topography. And as we see here, providing a way of escape for those that are trapped in Jerusalem. Imagine, I'm, I'm trying to be circumspect as I describe these things, but imagine all of the, the Israelites being hoarded back into, into concentration type camps in Jerusalem. The, the indignity and the shame, knowing that their death is just around the corner. Then the sky begins to break open and the mountains begin to fall. And this earthquake breaks open the city, breaks open a path. And you can almost hear the Lord saying, run, get out of the city. And they will run. But not only is this providing an escape for them, it's providing entry for the armies of the Lord Jesus. The word tells us that Jesus, we read the passage recently, will fight First, where is he going to come from? Where is he going to begin this fight? He's not going to return directly to the Mount of Olives, as is often said. He will first fight at Basra, which is the wilderness of Edom, which is where the Israelites are going to be hiding. So where is Jesus first going to come? Not to the city, but to that place in the wilderness where he's prepared a place for his people to be protected. As they're crying out, what did Jesus say? Your house is left to you desolate until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord until you recognize me as Messiah and mean it and call upon me to save you and mean it. Then I will come. And the day they do that, Jesus will return 
And everyone from Jerusalem will be watching this army and they're going to say, who is this? Because there's going to be a figure mounted on a right horse, splattered with blood like he was treading the wine press. Remember how we talked about for 200 miles, there's going to be blood and gore where Jesus rides and casts down these armies. And Zechariah 12 tells us he's going to bring all of those Hebrews with him. And it says the weakest man in Israel is going to fight like David on that day. And the strongest is going to fight like a son of God, B'nai Elohim, like Michael the archangel himself. So you get this picture. Jesus is, first of all, there's this heavenly cataclysm that's happening. Jesus returns to the earth, begins to wipe out these armies, and gathers an, a growing army behind him as they march on Jerusalem to take it back. And that will be exactly what happens. That he'll come back to Jerusalem, slay the Antichrist himself, and set up his kingdom. And that's what we're going to read about in chapter 19. I got a little bit ahead, but it's worth it. The only thing left to be described in this book is a detailed description of the fall of Babylon. But you should notice again as we come to the end of this chapter in Revelation, they're cursing God. They still have not repented justifying God and his judgment. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, if God would just give people a chance, they'd repent. It's not true. Remember the rich man that was sent to, to hell and asked to go back? He said, they'll believe me if I come back from the dead. Abraham said, if they have not believed Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody came back from the dead. And how true is that? Because our Lord returned and they still have not believed. So let's recap all this. I know it's a lot of information. I was trying to support everything I said with scripture. There's really even more I could get into. But let me just tell it to you real quick like a story so you can catch up here, all right? The seven pieces of the wars of the Antichrist here. Number one, he's going to defeat that African uprising. When his, his first war will be to establish himself as the sole ruler, putting down those three horns, right? The second, it says he will devote many to destruction. He's going to go around the world wiping out other nations. That's going to be what he occupies himself with for three and a half years. Then the third thing, he will gather his armies to Armageddon for the last one when, when Euphrates dries up. The fourth one, and this is the one where I have a hard time figuring out exactly where it fits in the timeline here, but we know it's going to happen. The fall of Babylon. He himself and his armies will destroy the capital city of this empire. More on that next week. Next comes the siege and the sack of Jerusalem. He's going to march with that Armageddon army on Jerusalem. He's going to win that fight. But then the sixth thing, God is going to supernaturally destroy his fighting power. And then the seventh, Jesus will return to finish the job. No more Antichrist. Jesus Christ will show up on the scene. Now listen, there are differences of opinion of how to read these things. And I love to discuss them. And there's much to, to go over. There's other pieces I could have brought in that I didn't. But the thing you ought to get from this is that this is coming. It's coming you know, you've got all these different strains that run through Revelation. You've, you've got the spiritual strain of what's going to happen to God's people. You've got the heavenly strain of what, what's actually happening in the heavenly realm between God and the devil. There's a political thing of the one world government that's going to dominate everybody. There's a religious thing where there's the worship of the Antichrist. There's this military thing of the wars the Antichrist is going to fight. What am I trying to say? God has told us in incredible detail about what is going to happen. And our inability to sort through them exactly does not mean that God is wrong. It means that we are insufficient. 
And the spiritual lesson to learn today is that you ought to be shocked at the stubbornness of these wicked men. After all that, they're not going to repent. They're going to refuse to repent. If people could just catch a glimpse of God's power, then they'd believe. It's not true. As much as you might want it to be. Because the heart of man is desperately and deceitfully wicked. And I'll ask you here at the end, what excuse do you have to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? You've heard the truth plainly, that the judgment of God is true and righteous, which means that patience he is showing to you right now is merciful and undeserved. God does not owe you a second chance. He didn't owe you a first chance. But he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to offer pardon for sin freely because the Lord knows if we're going to play fair, you're going to hell. So how about I take all of the Father's wrath Jesus said upon myself? So that way I can offer you my righteousness freely before the end comes. Which is why Jesus interjects in the middle of this and says, I'm coming like a thief. You're not going to expect it. It's going to happen suddenly. And the only ones ready are those that have clothed themselves by faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Do not be caught sleeping. Flee from the wrath to come and cling to Jesus.